The gospel lesson for the fourth Sunday of Easter comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, and you can find it on page 759 of the Pew Bible. In this gospel lesson, the Good Shepherd teaches us what love is. Please stand as you are able for the gospel. From John 10, beginning at verse 11, we read in Jesus' name. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia. In Jesus Christ, we see the definition of love. We have other pictures of love in our world. It's not like Jesus is the only image of it, but he is the strongest image of it, and he is the only perfect image of love. Now, I suppose if God simply wanted us to know theoretically what love is, he could have just dropped down the definition in words. But he wants us to see it. And he wants us to know it intimately instead of just theoretically, and he wants us to receive it. So instead of just dropping it down in words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Jesus Christ, we see the definition of love and we receive love. So what is love? This is, without a doubt, one of the most important Bible words to define. Because both the law and the gospel can be easily summarized in this word, love. If our brains rightly comprehend the meaning of this word, then our understanding of both law and gospel will be strong. But if our definition of this word is skewed, then both law and gospel can be completely misunderstood. And since the law and the gospel are the two primary doctrines of scripture, a misunderstanding of the word love could completely overthrow the teaching of the Bible. So, what is love? The word is used in many different ways. It always kind of grabs my attention when I hear someone on TV use the word love because I'm fascinated by the way that Hollywood catechizes our culture through fictional stories. I especially listen to their use of the word love and try to see if it's at all consistent with the Bible's use. It's usually not, by the way. Even in the most wholesome of shows, the definition is usually about feelings. The other day we were watching the Andy Griffith show, and Andy was explaining the concept of love to Opie because they thought Aunt B was falling in love with some guy. She wasn't. 
by the way, but Andy told Opie that there's this special kind of love that comes from way down deep inside your heart. And he said, that's the Marian kind of love. Now, Andy, he wasn't completely wrong, right? We do have special feelings for certain people. And when we have those feelings for the people we are supposed to have those feelings for, the special feelings are a good thing. But the word love isn't really the best word for those feelings. Maybe infatuation or affection are better words. So when you've got some warm feelings for your wife, you can say, I am infatuated with you. That'll probably make her feel good. And when you've got some warm feelings for your kids, you can say, I have great affection for you. But love, at least according to the Bible definition, is something else, something more than those feelings. Now, I'm not at all advocating a campaign against the culture to make them quit using our words so so carelessly. I don't think it would work, and uh, a Christian crusade against the Andy Griffith show might look kind of funny. (laughs) And uh, I don't think it would work either to come up with a new word for us to use. Having a different word might make it easier to specify what we're talking about, but changing language is nearly impossible, and we just don't have that much influence. So, for better or worse, we're kind of stuck with this word love. And the best thing we can do is understand that it has different meanings. And some of those meanings are are actually quite contradictory to each other. In the epistle lesson from 1 John, the Apostle John gives us the strongest definition of love. And you'll notice the similar language to the gospel lesson, too. He says, by this we know love that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So the Bible's kind of love is not a feeling. It's an action, self-sacrificial action. So when you say to your spouse or your kids, I love you, if you're using the Bible's definition of the word, what you're really saying is, I promise to sacrifice myself for you up to and including, if necessary, laying down my very own life for you. That is love. And I hope you can see how different that is from the world's definition of love, because the world's definition of love is all about our feelings. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the world can even twist the definition of love so far as to use it to justify doing harmful things to other people in order to satisfy our feelings of infatuation or affection. And this ironically, is the exact opposite of the Bible's definition, which demands self-denial and self-sacrifice for the good of our neighbor. Now, when infatuation and affection exist within the right relationships, those feelings are good because they make it a little bit easier for us to love. They make it easier to deny your own needs and sacrifice yourself for the wife you're infatuated with, or the children that you have great affection for. But the action of love does not depend on our feelings. Feelings come and go, but love is commanded to stay. In fact, the highest form of love is self-sacrifice when you don't feel like it, or when the recipient doesn't really deserve it. 
So love does not depend on our feelings or the worthiness of the other person. It depends on the command of God and the vocations that he has called us to. And God has called each of us to certain vocations. Some of us are husbands or wives. Some of us are parents or children or brothers or sisters. Some of us are employers or employees. Some of us are neighbors. Well, all of us are neighbors to someone. And within these vocations, God has placed certain people in our lives, and he has commanded us to love them. These vocations define which specific people we are to focus on first, because unless you're Jesus of Nazareth, you really can't sacrifice yourself for every person in the world. So, beginning with your own family, the people closest to you, you can make a list of who you sacrifice yourself for first, and who is second and third, and so on. So in this way, the word love summarizes the doctrine of the law. And the word love, it can also be used to summarize the doctrine of the gospel, but the direction is changed. The doctrine of the gospel has nothing to do with our love for our neighbors. It doesn't even have anything to do with our love for God. That also falls under the doctrine of law. The doctrine of the gospel has to do purely with God's love for us. And by love, we mean the self-sacrifice of God himself for our good. And to teach this doctrine in our gospel lesson, Jesus uses the absurd imagery of a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. And this is how we know love. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, if we stop and think critically about this for a few seconds, we might say, Jesus, you don't really know that much about shepherding, do you? Because shepherds aren't the ones who are supposed to do the dying. And this is pretty much a universal rule in every line of work. Sometimes it's so obvious that it's not even stated. When it is stated, the slogan is usually safety first. A more blunt way of saying it is this. The first rule of fill in the blank is don't die. Even in the vocations of a soldier or a police officer, where sometimes you have to intentionally put yourself in harm's way, death is to be avoided whenever possible. Now, I can imagine that sometimes shepherding can be dangerous, especially in the ancient world where you didn't really have much for fences and you didn't have modern weapons to fend off the wolves. There were certain risks you assumed by living in the wilderness with a bunch of helpless sheep. Now, a hired hand might assume fewer of these risks. If a wolf came, he might say, it's not really worth risking my life for someone else's sheep, and he would run away. But if you were the owner of the sheep, you might assume a little bit more risk. King David, for example, before he was king, when he was yet a boy, he fought off lions and bears to protect his sheep. He assumed the risk because it was his father's property and, by extension, also his own property, and he was confident that he could also win. But you know, there's a big difference between assuming a risk that is, knowing there's a chance you could be injured or even killed, there's a big difference between that and willingly laying down your life for some sheep. 
There's a big difference between assuming a risk and knowing for certain that you will die. The first is actually selfish. You want to protect your property, and that's not bad. But the second is sacrificial. You value the sheep above your own life. Now think about that. Any shepherd or rancher who actually valued his livestock over his own life, we would get that person some help, and rightly so. It's just not right to think that way. Human life is inherently more valuable than animal life. and This is based in the creation account from Genesis 1 and 2. And if human life is more valuable than animal life, then divine life, that is, the life of God, divine life is more valuable than human life. If it's out of place for humans to die in behalf of sheep, then it's also out of place for God to die for humans. But remember... This is the Bible's radical definition of love. So the major problem with a shepherd dying for a sheep is the difference in value. But there's a a secondary practical problem too. If the shepherd is dead, then the sheep have no one to protect them from the wolf. And we have the same problem with God dying for humans. If God is dead, then we have no one to protect us from the devil. The devil would love nothing more than to murder the shepherd of our souls, because then he would have free reign to steal and kill us at will. But Jesus, he has a solution for this. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, If a merely human shepherd said something like this, if he said, it's okay if I die for the sheep, I'll just come back to life again, we would think he's been playing too many video games. We would tell him that reality doesn't work like that. And, you know, when Jesus said stuff like this, his disciples did that very thing. They tried to talk some sense into him. But, unlike the mentally ill shepherd, Jesus actually knew what he was talking about. And he didn't let anyone stop him from laying down his life because he knew that he had authority to take it up again. Now there's a a little theological error that might tempt us here. If we understand this wrongly, and we want to avoid that whenever possible, if we understand this wrongly, we might think that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't that big of a deal because he was only dead for a short time. This theological error underestimates the scope of death. You see, death is not merely that terminal moment when the soul departs from the body. There's really much more to it. Death includes the entire process leading up to it. And death, uh, really at its core, it is separation from God. Death includes the anguish the soul experiences on account of sin. So when we think of Jesus and his sacrifice, the the breathing his last wasn't anywhere near the worst part of it. It was the bearing of our sin and the condemnation he received from his eternal father on account of that sin. Now we've probably all experienced those moments when the weight of our sin suddenly hits us and we're completely ruined. Sometimes we can be so heartbroken over our sin that we say something like, I don't even want to be forgiven anymore. Now imagine 
Imagine if our consciences weren't as seared as they really are. Imagine if we actually felt all of our guilt at once. Imagine if it wasn't just one sin, but all your sins that struck your conscience at the same time. And then imagine if it wasn't just your sins, but the sin of the entire world. I told you to imagine that, but I know that you can't. We never come close to experiencing the full weight of our own sin. We cannot imagine the death that Jesus experienced. His anguish was exponentially greater than anything we have ever experienced. In the relatively short amount of time that Jesus was on the cross, and it seems like like maybe even just within those three hours when darkness covered the land, in that short amount of time, we rightly say that the full cup of God's wrath over sin was poured out upon Jesus. So we should not ask... We should not underestimate Jesus' sacrifice on account of the short time that he was actually dead. Make no mistake about it. He experienced every drop of death that justice demands. And this is love. This, as St. John says, is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That perfect life he had, that perfect communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, that is what he laid down for us. And by this, we know love. Our good shepherd has done this for his sheep. God has done this for rebellious humans. This is how he loves and shepherds his flock. By this great act of love, laying down his life and taking it up again, he protects us eternally from the mouth of the wolf. And now he lives forever to lead and guide his sheep. He even lives to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. That same shadow that could not hold our good shepherd cannot hold the sheep either. Because the good shepherd has been there. He has gone into the valley of the shadow of death, and he has emerged victorious on the other side of it. And so now he promises to lead his dear sheep through it as well. The valley could not hold Jesus, and it cannot hold you, his dear sheep. The valley is not deep enough, and the shadow is not dark enough. The good shepherd has gone through it, and he will guide you through it as well. So we can pray with David. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.